So Luke 15 is an amazing chapter. And like so many preachers, I suppose, I feel like I've talked about the stories in this particular text a hundred times in some form or another, at least on a stage somewhere, somehow. Um, because I think it's so crucial. For me, the, the central thing that Jesus does, I mean, Jesus does a lot of things, but it is uniquely within the Gospels. For all the other ways that Scripture is useful, for all the other ways that Scripture is inspired, it is uniquely the Gospels that answer the question for us of what is God like? And I feel like Luke 15 in particular is so crucial in that whole enterprise of Jesus challenging us to think differently about who God is, who God has always been through the medium of these wonderful stories. Um, I'm doing this new podcast right now called The Zeitcast. And a couple of days ago, I was on with my friend Juanita Rasmus and she had a beautiful treatment of the last story, which we won't get to today, but of the, the story of the two sons, which, as she said aptly in that conversation, is really the story of two lost sons, more than this, the story of one prodigal, two lost sons. But in these first two stories of lostness, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the woman who loses a coin, I don't know, I just, I'd been sitting with that for a few days, and I knew I felt like this was the text I was supposed to preach from, but it really didn't kind of hit me until yesterday, the way these things go, that there was just one kind of shift in my perspective. I don't know that it'll be anything mind-blowing for you, but that for me, like, it's just kind of electrifying, like, it's just lit me up. So I don't know if this will mean as much to you as it will to me in that way, but it is hot off the presses. So let me start this off like this. So we get these two different illustrations here of what God is like, of the character of God. And, of course, the context is the scribes, Pharisees, the religious leaders are grumbling that Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners, the people who are of ill repute. So they're grumbling about this. And in response, Jesus gives these two stories. The one is of a shepherd who has 100 sheep, loses one, and he says, which among you, if you're a shepherd, if you lose one of your sheep, is not going to leave the 99 to go pursue the one, and not only do you pursue the one, but when you find the one, you rejoice, you celebrate, you call all the neighbors, you party, and then he goes straight from this, and I love this, I love this story for a number of different reasons, because especially in a world then, very much as it is now, when people's ideas about God were often very small and constrained. Here's an image of God that you don't think of every day. A woman who's lost a coin that was meaningful to her and who is sweeping the house to find it. And when she finds the coin, you have this woman who is leaping in delight. Jesus gives this as an image for God. God who is not gendered, as Jesus himself would say, God is spirit. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the, 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 the shepherd who 
leaves the 99 to go after the one, puts it over his shoulders, then has this celebration. The woman who finds the coin, and everybody knows that feeling, don't you? I mean, I don't know if you, anybody here is like me. I lose things all the time. I mean, I really, I'm a disaster. It's remarkable I got here this morning or that I get anywhere. Losing keys, losing, leaving the debit card at the restaurant and losing contacts. I mean, I just, you know, I'm, it's just a ton of calamity. So, and oftentimes I lose things and don't get them back. But when I actually do recover something, the, the, the jubilation, the elation, like that is, is, is really, really something. But the thing that has me like really lit up today, like there... It was tempting to want to do a whole thing about, and then all this would be great. Like, you know, do some sort of cool contextual treatment about shepherds in Jesus' time and what it would mean for the sheep to leave the 99 to go after the one. Or yeah, and there's lots of really wonderful things contextually we could do around these stories. But I think somehow, and, and this is so basic, I mean, it might even seem almost elementary or childlike, but I was sitting with this text yesterday and it's like it dawned on me for the first time. I mean, I know these are parables. They're obviously parables. But um, if even Jesus, the great teacher, the greatest teacher that's ever been, has to resort to, I hate to say having to resort, but you know what I'm saying. Like, if, if the only way to speak about God in a way that could be truthful and compelling. And the only way that Jesus, even Jesus could speak about God in a way that communicate truth to us is through the medium of fiction. It's through the medium of what seems like ordinary stories of ordinary people, but that give us a sliver of what the divine is really like. Somehow it just landed on me differently that like, as much as there are beautiful details of these particular stories that I've loved, and particular details from these stories that I've preached about, that in some ways, you know, the, um, the, the stories themselves are not the point insofar that they illustrate something so much bigger. So let me say it like this. For me, the through line in all three of these stories of lost people and lost things, lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons through Luke 15 is this. Desire and delight. That sounds very preachy, doesn't it? I just wrote alliteration. Desire and delight. Also, next Sunday, we're going to talk about the promise of prayer, the power of prayer, the purpose of prayer. A, the profundity of prayer. I don't normally alliterate that way. The, but really, this, this whole thing of desire... The shepherd who loses his one sheep, who is driven, compelled, consumed, will not tend to the 99, can't think about the 99 until he has the one back. Utterly consumed, utterly swept up, the desire of the shepherd. The woman who, in that way, once again, all of us can relate to on some level, who's ever lost something that's important. That thing that you do, I did it not long ago of when you're actually like almost breaking the furniture because you're ripping up cushions and turning things upside down or whatever, like, like, like that, that kind of intensity, like that 
level of desire. But then beyond the desire then, the delight. The shepherd finds the, sh- the lost sheep, puts it over his shoulder. And it's a cause for a celebration now for the entire community. The sheer delight. And that's what I love about the woman in the second parable. Is there's no attempt whatsoever to conceal the delight. There's no, and think about it once again. This is an illustration for what God is like. For what God is like. <laughs> that there, there's, no, um, there's no attempt to be cool here. God depicted as a woman who is absolutely beside herself for finding this this coin that she had lost, the desire and the delight. So I think what I'm trying to say this morning, that again, I think is very, very simple, but somehow for me is, is doing something in here, is that because I think the point is about God's desire for us and God's delight in us. There's no way that these two parables are the end of the story. These two parables just gesture in that direction. They're just meant to break us open to God's desire and God's delight. They're parables, a way of saying, this is what God is like. One of the things that I'm continuing to discover the more that I find myself as kind of a participant in this text and a participant in this story. Some, a few of you here have probably seen that I actually have an original movie, uh, movie poster from The NeverEnding Story. Any, y'all know The NeverEnding Story, like the 1984 NeverEnding Story? This was back before all this horrible CGI. Can I get an amen somewhere where everything feels like a video game? No, no, no. They're like puppets, like stuff actually moves. You know what I mean? Like that's my kind of fantasy when the stuff actually moves, you know, as opposed to like just green screens and whatever. Like The NeverEnding Story was my favorite movie when I was a kid. And I was so, and I ended up reading the book like probably when I was 10 years old or something uh, uh, within a couple years of seeing the movie. But this whole idea, if you have seen the film and if not, if you have kids or whatever, like, what are you doing? Like, like get on this quickly. <laughs> but, you know, the whole idea, right, bashing this kid who finds this really old book, or I say finds it, he steals it out of a bookstore, and he's reading it, and he has this moment where he realizes that he's actually a character in the story, and there's that wonderful scene in the film where he actually throws the book across the room because it's too intense, he realizes, like, he's in it. I feel like that's really how we're supposed to read Scripture, that's how it's supposed to work on us, is that it's, it's not meant to be read as history. It's not meant to be read as a science textbook. And I, I could go on about eight little rants right there. This probably would not be helpful. It's not meant to be read that way. It, it, it's, it's supposed to be read much more like the never-ending story, like you find yourself in the story, and you find your life in the story in, in ways that are sometimes comforting and sometimes terrifying, but you're learning how to read your own life and you're given the resources to, to find God at work and to listen to God in your own life. That, that is the point. So I think what Luke 15 opens us up to is that if we're 
if we're able to connect to, I started to say the idea, and I don't want to say the idea, to the reality of a God who embodies desire and delight. A God who embodies desire and delight. Like, these aren't even characteristics of God, like in a peripheral way. This is like what God is. God is desire. God is delight. Like these, these are, these, whatever it is that we mean when we speak about God, these things are core, these things are central. Desire and delight that you were conceived beyond the natural meaning of that term, that you were conceived in love, that love is where you come from, that in the same way in the Genesis story, that the Spirit of God hovers over the chaos, that from the beginning, Spirit hovered over you, Spirit sung over you, delight is where you come from, that there is something that is within you, but that yet is also outside of you, outside of us, that delights in you, delights in your every breath, delights in your very existence, delights in who you are and how you are and how you were made. That that, that's where we come from. That's what we come from. We are born of desire and delight. And if that is true, and if it's true that these parables of Jesus only scratch the, the, just the, the tip of this, if this is just the tip of the iceberg, is if these are just a couple of illustrations among many of what the God of desire and delight looks like, then what that can open us up to is that whenever we run into desire and delight, we find ourselves running into God. We find ourselves in a place where we can recognize God, where we can recognize the Spirit of God. Man. My friend Glennon posted this morning something on Instagram. It's a Johnny Cash quote. Something like, uh, he was asked, what is paradise? And he said, uh, I had coffee with her this morning. It was something like that. And I thought, and I mean like beyond like being sentimental or something. Like that really is, that really is beautiful, isn't it? Like this idea of like, oh, what, 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 is, what is paradise? Oh, that's like to be with the person you love. To be kind of seen and known in that way. I mean, that is, that is paradise. I just, I don't know if this sounds like watering anything down. I don't think I am. I'm trying to open you up because I'm feeling myself opened up in this way. Okay, so here's what this, somewhat, this has looked like in my own life. Work with me here. So when I was a kid, the person who probably most shaped my life, my early consciousness around God, spiritual things, is my grandmother. And my, my grandfather was a minister, Pentecostal minister, passed away when I was three. But she was just like a saint. And 
the our denomination had like a we called it a campground. A lot of the ministers and ministers' widows lived there. She had a little house there beside. I called it a lake. It was really more of a pond, but she had a house there. It was very sacred to me. And I would spend my summers at her house, where because she was a southern grandma, she would. Every, it was and she was so simple about these things. She would fry cornbread every day, fried cornbread, very very simple, like in like in a skillet. I just I, I love that. Just somehow said that in a very spiritual way, like and you can probably feel that like in a skillet, like it sound in a skillet. <laughs> like I expected amens or something there. Maybe I do on some level in a skillet. People, I don't know if. In Oklahoma folks even understand this. And in North Carolina, we fry cornbread in a skillet. But she would fry cornbread in a skillet, and she would make tang. Now, that's a grandma for you right there. Tang. And we would watch The Price is Right, and we would play Scrabble. And it was just the safest place in the universe to me. I felt so loved. And my grandmother was a person who deeply loved Jesus. And early on, I identified being with my grandmother with being in the presence of God, that to be around her is what it's like to be around God, to be around Jesus. That's what I identified. And I knew that my grandmother was the sort of person, too, that no matter where my life was going to go, what kind of person I became, that that sense of safety, that sense of delight, that that was never going to go away. She died when I was 18 years old. That's been a long time. But still, those memories are a touchstone for me. And when, years later, and some of you heard me tell some of these stories, Margaret Gaines was a missionary to Palestinians. She died about two years ago, and uh, I guess was 85 at the time. But um, she reminded me so much of my grandmother. And when she retired, she had three heart attacks, finally came back home to Pell City, Alabama. And when I would go and I would stay with her, and last time would have been just a few years ago, probably six months or so before she died. And I remember that like sleeping on the fold out sofa in her living room. And that when she got up in the morning and was making breakfast and I could hear her singing the old, more kind of Church of God redback hymns under her breath. And while she's, you know, just moving around the kitchen and then the smell of the food. I remember it felt like my grandmother's house. It smelled like my grandmother's house. For that matter, she smelled kind of like my grandmother to me. Is that just an old people thing? I don't know. It was wonderful. I felt like it was, it was as if I was in a time machine and that that house in Pell City, Alabama was like the house in Charlotte where my grandmother was. But I knew I, I knew I felt that, I knew I felt that delight. I remember the first time I went to see Sister Gaines after divorce, and because she was such a saintly woman, I don't know why I was kind of scared to do that. And when I went, I felt perfectly ridiculous because I think on some level I knew there wasn't going to be sort of any any judgment there, but in my head, I just I couldn't get past that. But oh, it's like she was so thrilled to see me. She was so thrilled to have me in her home, and I remember just how much that communicated to me. And I know I'm I'm riffing and just telling stories, 
I could do this for days and so could you. But that, that is the point, is to raise the question to maybe just activate this inside your own soul. Where are those places? Who are those people where you have felt that kind of delight? Where have you felt desired? Where have you ever felt really, really desired? Where have you ever felt fully seen and fully known? That's what I love about the Johnny Cash quote that Glenn used, is that there really is a way in which when another person delights in you, that we are tasting something of heaven on earth. That's what paradise is. And what I'm doing right now is not abstract or weird or um, new agey mumbo jumbo. This is the essence of the teachings of Jesus. Is that the kingdom of God, the reality of God is breaking into the ordinary all around us if we have eyes that are open and ears that are open right here in front of us. The kingdom, Jesus taught, is at hand. In other words, it's within your grasp. It is not far off. It is right here. And any and every time that we're awakened to desire and to delight is an opportunity to recognize God, to recognize the Spirit of God. Where is God at work in your life? Where do you feel wanted? Where do you feel cared for? Where is there a space where you are delighted in? Because I'll guarantee you that it's in those places and among those people that there is an opportunity to be open to the things of God. Now, I know this breaks down to a point in that because we are human in ways that are holy, but also in ways that are fractured and incomplete, that even in the best of those kind of relationships, that that breaks down sometimes. And that sometimes we could be wanted or desired and until we're not. And some people we've cared about have delighted in us until they didn't. <laughs> and in that regard, of course, there's something about God that transcends and kind of blows up those categories. But it doesn't mean that what we experience in those relationships is not a really important taste of that. In fact, that's all we've got. Just like Jesus is grasping here for real life stories that people could identify with. What do people have? What do people know? They knew about sheep. They knew about shepherds. They knew about farming. They knew about poor women and coins. And so in the same way, that's kind of just what I want to ask you this morning is, is what's, what's in your hands in terms of these stories, these people, these places where you experience the desire and the delight? Because wherever the desire and the delight is, I guarantee you that's where God is drawing. That's where God is wooing. You know, I'm almost done, I promise. The, um, of course, the 
the build here, right, is that Jesus says, when the shepherd finds the lost sheep and brings it back home, he says, this is how much joy there is among the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. And same thing with the parable of the lost coin, that this is the joy, this is the delight that's experienced in our repentance. And you know something really sad this morning is that I feel like as I talk about that, I had this moment where I could, I could almost, and maybe there's a lot of drama that plays out in my head that's probably quite imaginary. And maybe I'm projecting these things onto you. But I'm, I'm kind of imagining, it's like, oh boy, we're, we're talking about desire and delight and, oh, that's beautiful. And you're thinking about, I hope you're thinking about, because I, I hope my stories, there's no point in them except to open you up to your stories. I hope you're thinking about those places where you experience desire and delight. I hope you have permission to not see those things as separate from God, but precisely as sacred spaces precisely where you encounter God's presence in like a really profound way, the most profound way. I hope you're opened up to that. But I had this moment inside where I just, I could almost feel the shift of kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, boy, that sounds great. Desire and delight and God's at work and inexperience where we, where we find these things. Ah, but then there's, there's this repentance part. Like that's going to be the real buzzkill. Like desire and delight sounds awesome, but ah, oh, Repentance. Now we have to talk about that. This very religious word. Because things can't just be, it can't just be about delight and desire. Repentance. And it, you know, it really makes me sad because I think that word, like a whole lot of other words that are quite beautiful, have got co-opted to mean things that they never meant. You know what repentance means? I mean, on one level, it's a really basic word. Repentance in Greek literally just means to change your mind. Repentance is to change your mind. <laughs> repentance means that you get your act 100% together and you go from being a filthy, rotten person to a very pious person. I mean, no, like, I mean, the very Luke 15 literally starts with all the tax collectors who are, of course, considered traitors in their context because to Jewish people in Jesus' time, they're sellouts to the Roman government, extorting their own people. The tax collectors and sinners are drawing close to Jesus. They can't get enough of Jesus. They're coming close. And the reason Jesus even riffs out these stories, the reason he jams out these stories is because of the criticism that he's always with tax collectors and sinners. So like, no, clearly the idea here is not the repentance meant to become these very pious, perfect people. That's never been the kind of people that Jesus drew or was interested in drawing or the kind of disciples Jesus wanted to make. That's never where the story was going. That's never what repentance was about. Repentance at its most basic level is a change of mind. But... And see, I'm trying not to skip ahead later into Luke 15 because I feel like, you know, going by the lectionary, the parable of the two lost sons is off limits. That's further on. But let me give you just this one sliver. Then I really am done. That there's that moment where this prodigal son 
the son who took his father's inheritance while his father was still alive. It's a really crummy thing to do. And goes out and squanders that on dissolute living. At least that's what his brother says. There's this moment when he's in the hog pen, which especially for a Jewish person, this is the most disreputable place you could possibly be, the most unholy place. Where there's this phrase, he's thinking about the house that he comes from. He's remembering the tang and the fried cord bread and scrabble and the price is right. He's remembering the goodness of the place that he comes from and he's thinking about where he is now. And the exact phrase in Luke 15 is, it says that then he came to himself. He came to himself. Repentance, generally speaking, is a change of mind. But if you want to know what repentance really is, in essence, I think that one little phrase is the best we've got. What is repentance? To come to yourself. To remember who you are. To remember who God has always said that you are. Because this, uh, this proclamation where God says, you're my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, that has always been true. That is what God has always said about you. That's what God was saying about you long before you prayed some kind of a prayer, went to church. But God has always called you beloved. So what is repentance if not a waking up to who you really are and who you've always been? To remember, to wake up, to recognize, recognize, remember, remember who you are. Come to yourself. Come to yourself. That's the invitation of the gospel. That's the invitation of Jesus. It's not religious and it's not full of piety and hoops and whatever. The invitation is Come to yourself. (laughs) Come wake up to the you that you've really always been, but not had permission to be. Come wake up and be the real you, who you've always been made. Apart from all the expectations that you've internalized, other people have put upon you. It's just like what God says to Adam and Eve in the garden. Who told you that you were naked? All these things that you've been told you're supposed to do, ways you're supposed to act, ways you're supposed to perform, that we think are God. I think God would say to us, who told you that? Fill in the blanks. God didn't say those things. When you come to yourself and you remember who you are, and how do you remember who you are? How do you find out who you are? Through contact with the God who desires you and delights in you. Through that desire and delight. That's it. And that's what empowers us to change in all the right and constructive ways is we know how loved we are. And we know how loved we are that we're not doing a bunch of random-ish to try to figure it out. We're not looking for someone else to fulfill that. We're not putting all this ridiculous weight on everybody else to plug that hole. Because even though, once again, human relationships mediate to us something of the desire 
of God and something of the light of God, no human is able to carry the full weight of that. When we know that we're loved, when we know that we're wanted, when we know that we're delighted in, we're free. We're free now to be real boys and girls. We're free to live from a deep place. We're free to live from a deeper kind of identity. Stand with me if you would. I said I was done for a minute, didn't I? Sorry about that. Um, yeah, go ahead and join me, Jordan. That'd be great. You know, I might have got a little churchy, a little churchy, a little preacher, and I meant to. But you know, I just like um, I really, I really believe these things. <laughs> Imagine that huh? preacher really believes these things. But I do, and um, just before we come to the table. And if you've heard me do this before, then you kind of know that no matter what we do, it's always going to be like, you know, this is what the table's about. And it's always true. Because the table's about so many things. It's at the table that we remember. The table is where we remember how wanted we are, how desired we are. The table's where we remember the God who delights in us. That's actually through bread and wine. It's actually through the taste on our lips that we know who God is. It's all right here. This, we're, we're reminded of these things every time that we gather and we do this. So we'll do that in just a moment. But for this moment, I just want to invite you briefly. If you feel comfortable to close your eyes, and I promise nothing weird is going to happen. All I want you to do is just for a moment. Does it have to be long? Does it need to be long? Feel your feet planted firmly on the floor. Feel yourself fully present in this room. And yet, not super conscious about any of the people around you or anything that's happening around you. And I want you just for a moment, And Spirit of God, I ask that you would lead us and guide us in this, that you would bring things to our attention that we need to recall. Where have you felt the delight? Where have you felt the desire? Where have you seen God in this way? But you did not know that it was God. Who loves you in this godlike way? Where have you felt that kind of safety? Where have you felt rejoiced in and delighted in? I want you to give yourself permission. Maybe for some of you, this would be for the first time to really believe that wherever you've experienced being wanted and desired in that way, being seen, being known, being delighted in, that was a taste of something really, really holy. That was a taste of how God feels about you. You really think it's possible that a 
grandma or a great grandpa or a best friend or a lover could possibly, could possibly love you more than God does, delight in you more than God does, desire you more than God does. It's an awfully good taste. It's paradise even. But it's still only a fraction. It's still only a drop in the ocean. That there is a God who is not loving, but who is love itself. Who is consumed with you. Mad about you. Preoccupied with you. No lengths that this God will not go to bring you home to the safety of this love, to return to love, to return to your belovedness, to return to delight, to return to celebration, to return to wonder, to return to where you come from. Just settle into that. Just know that you're loved. And what am I gonna do with it? (laughs) You don't need to do anything. Accept. Hear this invitation. Come to your self. Come to yourself. Wake up to who God says that you are, who God has always said that you are. Wake up to what's always been true about you. Wake up to the voice that calls you beloved. Come to yourself. Father and the Son, Holy Spirit.